Today is the second Sunday of Advent. Second Sunday of Advent, and uh, for the season of fall, we will be talking to Lord Campaign. But we're putting that on a hiatus. We'll come back to that series in January. But for the season, as we change, uh, as we change the tune a bit, we talk about the Christmas season, talk about the coming Christ child, the King, as we just sang about the King, and as we await the coming of the King. Today, we're going to have three reflections, three reflections, and if you look in your bulletin, you'll see three passages from the book of Psalms, Isaiah, and Matthew. Three passages that are designated for this particular Sunday of Advent, and we're going to look through these, we're going to reflect So the first passage is Psalm 72, verse 1 to 7, and then 18 to 19. And what I'm going to do is read through these words. Once again, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. Sometimes information is best received listening. We're reading things all all the time. We're looking at our phones, we're looking at things online, we're looking at the computer, and we're reading, reading, reading. Sometimes we just need to breathe. And so close your eyes. May you judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May you vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressors. Let them fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May you come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace until the end of the age. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the hope of the church be broken Amen. This passage speaks about the earth longing and waiting, waiting for the coming king, almost like a parched ground. Testament 
Professor Bruce Walton tells a wonderful story that I'm going to read to you. This wonderful story talks about the kingdom of God. He says this, The human mind by nature synthesizes particulars into abstract universals. In other words, when you read the Bible, you have individual stories, you have themes, but those particulars are we able to synthesize them into a universal. So we can say the Bible has one theme threaded throughout all of it. He continues, and he says, my two-year-old son vividly documents reality. At first, when we asked my son to pray for the breakfast food, we thank God for each particular item on the table. Thank you, God, for the eggs. Thank you, God, for the toast. must have sensed the irritation of his family because three weeks later when it was his turn to pray again, to their relief, he thanked God for what? The food. He synthesized all of the particulars on the table into one universal, thank you God for the breakfast table. And so Bruce Walton asks, is there one universal in scripture that can synthesize all of the particular themes? And what is that? To continue the analogy from a two-year-old, is there a universal that accommodates What he's saying is, in the scripture, there is one thing. There is one thing. And friends, I'd like to offer you a pair of glasses as we read scripture to see all of the Bible through the lens of the kingdom of God. Um, a professor once asked the seminary students, what is the big theme of the Bible? They responded, love, forgiveness, grace. And he said, actually, there is a the big theme from the beginning all the way to the end of Scripture is this idea of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The Advent season is the time where we recall this theme of the kingdom of God. Why is the kingdom of God important to talk about? Not only do we sing about a king, but we also welcome the coming kingdom. Of course, kings don't come and they set up shop. What they do is they bring a kingdom with them. So when we talk about the returning of the king, what exactly are we talking about? We're talking about not just a king, but his rule, his reign, about his order. The kingdom of God is important, I think, because we live in a society where we don't like change. George Washington, our country's first president, before he was president, just a general, was approached by one of his officers, and they said, General, we've taken a vote which he responded, are you seriously trying to replace King George III with King George I? The notion is preposterous. And for us, we're not accustomed to this idea of a king. Come on, get real. We live in a society where we're much more, I guess, cynical. The reason the king and the kingdom is important is because it brings us back to a place of it brings us back to a place where there is a bigger story, where instead we live in a place of we live in a place of cynicism, where we just we 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 fail to see how a king or a bigger story of a kingdom has any bearing upon us. 
Let me illustrate what I mean. With my children, ever since they were young, uh, I and my wife were To this day, they're starting to have their doubts. They're starting to have their doubts, but we're still using Jesus. We're still using him just as they see. Are there any large children here that still believe in Jesus? Hopefully I'm not destroying the eternal Christ of the Why did we do that? For me personally, and this is not preaching, uh, you can believe this, but for me personally and my wife, we, we decided to do this is something I think we've lost in our society. There's nothing sadder than a small four or five-year-old that says, come on, there is no Santa Claus. I read it on the internet. There's no <laughs> such thing. It's just mommy and daddy wearing a red cap, and there is no, no, there is no heaven. There's nothing realer than what we see right here. Let's be realists. And the thing about that is the sad reality when we grow up, when we grow up, we lose sight of these meta-narratives sight of ideals. We say everything is just what happens on earth. We look at the particulars of the world and we say this is just the way it is. This is the way the world is. It's tough. To introduce the notion of the king back into our lives is to say, no, 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 no. There is a higher order. There is a higher good. There is a higher reality. And this is why you know, it's unavoidable but I always come back to the story of the Lord of the Rings. Why? Because it calls us back when Frodo and Sam are on the mountain, just kind of, okay? I know. But when they're on the mountain and, and, and Frodo says, I've lost all hope, all is darkness and fire and fear and annihilation. And why are we doing this? And Sam grabs him and he says, we're doing this because there's some good in the world that's worth fighting for. And it's worth fighting. And friends, as realists, unfortunately, we live in a world of realists. Santa Claus, come on, jingle bells, are you serious? But as, as realists, we, we lose sight that there's something worth fighting for. We lose sight that there is a higher good and a higher reality. The kingdom of God, every year, reminds us that there is some good in the world that we're still fighting for. And it's worth fighting for. Kingdom of God reminds us every year that there is some good in the world and it's worth And so this Advent season, you'll hear a lot about the kingdom of God. But don't take my word for it. Let's look at scripture and see how this spread all throughout the Bible. As we look at the second passage, Isaiah chapter. Let's look at this together. Isaiah 11, verse 1, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This is the time of the year um, where I'm getting my hands into the garden, and it's, it's getting cold outside, so I have to prune all of the dirt and plant things like this. And, you know, if I sit down and I look at stem or a bougainvillea bush and I, I, I prune it just an inch above the bud. I know that comes spring that it will shoot out, that new bud will grow in a new direction, will grow more fully. 
Imagine a bush that's been hard pruned and cut down low, and yet what appears dead, there will bud something new, new, new stem will grow forth. It, it's like it's like the white tree of that was dead, and yet when the king returns, if you know the ancient metaphor, when the king returns, what happens? A new bud will come to life. The tree in the line of Jesse has been long dead. Nothing good has come from it. And yet what the author of Isaiah is saying is very similar to that prophecy. A new bud will grow in Jesse, because from Jesse came King David, Jesus, and a new Little did he know that a couple of hundred years later, there would come one from the line of Jesse, from the line of King David. He would be a king, he would be a king like there was none ever seen before. A king like no other. A king whose sword will pierce where no sword can pierce. It says in verse 2 of Isaiah 11, that the spirit of the Lord will rest on this new king. The spirit of wisdom understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord. And so on this king, this new king, from, whom, uh, from, the, from the root of Jesse, from this new king, the spirit will rest on him. The spirit of goodness, the spirit of discernment, the spirit of righteousness, counsel, strength, knowledge, the fear of the Lord. This is a king like no other. There's a story that I'm going to share with you. It's, it's a story about a ship. And this ship was sailing on the ocean. And suddenly the captain of the ship died. And therefore, all the sailors gathered together and said, who can lead this ship? And of course, there was one sailor, and his name was Popeye, and he said, I'm stronger than the rest of you. I'm bigger than the rest of you. I can beat all of you up. And therefore, I should lead this ship. I should be the ruler. Other sailors said, I know how to sail better. I'm the best sailor. Another sailor said, I can beat all of you with arm wrestling, or I can play with poker better than you guys. I should be the one to rule the ship. One sailor said, what about that guy up there on the cliff, the navigator? Are you kidding me? He's not going to do it. All he does is teach dreamers so they don't get discouraged. But little did they know that the navigator, although he wasn't as good a sailor or as strong or could enforce his will upon others like the other sailors, the navigator had one thing going for him. He knew the stars. He knew the forms. He knew heaven. Because he understood heaven, and because he understood the stars, he was really the only one qualified to be captain of the ship. He was the only one qualified to lead the ship. Why? Because he had access to the heavens. And he could tell right from wrong, good from evil. At this point, Israel had seen many kings, many kings that could impose their will upon other people, many kings that could politicize better, many kings that could manipulate and maneuver better. But what they needed a king was one who understood the heavens and could say left from right, good from evil, right from wrong, and that could shepherd the people in a way that was good for the people. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and this Christ would be a different king from all of the other kings that Israel saw. 
continues in verse 3. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but instead with righteousness he will judge the poor, and he will decide in fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and his breath his lips and slay the wicked, and righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and painfulness Somebody that doesn't say everything goes. Friends, the longer I live on this earth, which is not very long, by the way, you may know that, but the longer I live on this earth, I see that there is a judgment. That what we reap is not that kindness paid is kindness that should not be paid. And that there is a God in heaven who sees and who is faithful to us and loves us. There is a God in Righteousness, faithfulness, lawfulness, fairness, integrity, all of these things, all of these things will be ours when the Lord comes. And then we have this beautiful passage in verse 6. The wolf will lie down, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the calf and the young calf. And a little boy will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. The young will lie down. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the brook of the open. And the nursing children will be there. That's the last thing we want. And yet the peace on earth and the, the nursing child, the, the, the un, un, unimaginable things, the weaned child with his hand on the mighty hand, will they not hurt or destroy all my holy mountain? For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then men will gather. And then people and nations will resort to the feet of Jesse, who will stand as a symbol of his obedience and mercy, grace, and holiness. This is an idealistic concept of this kingdom. The kingdom of God speaks about this kind of peace. And yet we live in a world reconcile what we're reading. If Jesus came, then why is it that we don't have this tension and this idealism? And why is it that there is still so much suffering in the world, problem in the world? This is where Elijah gets called to attention. I'd like to do a little bit of teaching and share with you this Christ event. It's called the Christ event. You can pull up that first image. Where what, we have, what we have here is a time of uh, something called this present we live in historic times now, not even right now, but historically, this age that we live in, let's call it this present age. And in this present age, in this present age, Christ came historically, and you don't even have to be a Christian to believe this. We know that as a historical figure, Christ came decisively in a moment in history, according to the book of the second generation. Christ came in the next, Christ came decisively in a moment of history. The reason for the Jewish people they had such a hard time accepting Christ was because what they expected, not only was the Christ event, but something called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord would be the end of the rule, of the evil rule of Rome. It would be the end of injustice, the end of suffering. 
And what's supposed to happen, not what's supposed to be this, what's supposed to happen is this was supposed to usher into us, us into a new age to come. No more suffering, no more injustice, no more evil rulers. Uh, the lion and the lamb will lie down together. And yet it seems that this life that we live in, it seems more like this present age as opposed to the age to come. Why is it that we live in a, in a, in a world that it seems much more like the previous age, the Christ in, in the disciples age? What's true? Well, let's do the next definition. What we believe as Christians is not just one coming, but we believe in two comings. The first coming of Christ is the Christ event historically. But the day of the Lord, we believe, that will usher us into the age to come where there will be no more tears, where the lion will indeed lie down with the lamb, is the second coming, which is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. A good way to understand this is the analogy from World War II of D-Day. And if you're familiar with what happened during World War II, uh, as the Allied forces came closer and closer in, there came a point where the Axis forces were fighting back, but they, it, it, there was a decisive moment, it's called D-Day, Invasion of Normandy, where the Allied forces knew that they won this battle, the war is done, it's in the past. Well, the war is not done yet, but we know that it's impossible. It's impossible to end this battle. It's impossible to end this D-Day meant it was a decisive victory. It was a decisive victory. But Hitler was not yet done. The Axis forces were still fighting back, and there still would be victory. In other words, what we have here is a picture similar to that, where the coming of Christ in history is like D-Day. It's the beginning of the end. There's definitely a, a clear demarcation where this thing is done. But until the final day, which was the very last shot was fired, there would still be this age of tension. This age of tension where there still was fighting, where there still was resistance. Friends, what we live in right now is this period of this age of tension and tension building. We live, in, on the one hand, in a very realistic kind of this, this present age where there's so much wrong, evil, and suffering in the world, but we also live with the very definitive reality that Christ has come. He has ushered in the age to come. He has inaugurated a new world. But we live in that tension. And this is why when we look at passages like this and we say, how come the lion doesn't lie down with the lamb? How come there still is not yet judgment? How come we still live in the midst of so much pain and suffering? It's because we live in these end times. And the fill in the blank in your notes, the first thing is that the kingdom of God, it is already It's already in the sense that when Christ came, he didn't just come and disappear and do nothing good. Christ brought in a new world of justice. But at the same time, it's not yet finalized. It's not yet fulfilled. The kingdom of God is already and not yet. However, this is second building now. We live in the tension of overlapping worlds. We live in this tension where all is still not yet. Friends, if there's ever a moment, this holiday season, this Christmas season, 
Question for reflection. Contributing to the world's darkness, to the age of tension, but to this present age, or am I contributing to the age of darkness? Which kingdom am I contributing to? Which kingdom am I contributing to? If we find that I'm advancing more and more to this present age, the wrong kingdom, if I'm advancing the wrong agenda, if I'm advancing this is what leads us to the third and last passage. Listen, as I read from Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 to 12, this is why John the Baptist had to come. And this is why he had to say, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't live anymore for this present age, but live for the age to come. Live for this new reality. And all of Jerusalem was going out to John the Baptist and were being baptized. Jordan River as they confessed their sins. As we commit our lives to no longer living for this present age, we confess our sins as we live for this age to come. And when he saw the Pharisees, he warned them. He said, you disciples, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He said something that I think is very important. Bear fruit in each of you. Bear fruit in each of you. You know, there's a big Sometimes a better word to choose is, I was wrong. I was wrong for doing that to you, or I was wrong for allowing that to happen to you. Or even more, there might be a little step, I repent. I repent for what I have done. Well, is repentance just a flippant word that we throw out? Repentance means change. It means a reversal. It means going in one direction. Involves the virtue of courage. Courage. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just say the words, but show the evidence. Show the Father and bear fruit. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a very bracing word. Then he says, as for me, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. Even John is aware. Even John is aware of his own sin. Even he is aware. Lest you think that the only person that can tell other people to repent is a person with a perfect record. No, even John is aware that he's imperfect. And he says that this one who comes will baptize with the Holy Spirit my prayer today is that our congregation not just baptize with water, but also baptize with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Every Christmas season, and I'll conclude with this, we prepare for the kingdom of God. We set up the lights.
was the best way for us to prepare for Christmas. The best way to prepare is repentance. Repentance is the best way. I know that some of you gathered at the boat's house last night for the sushi. Sushi is a part of it. And in between, in between tasting sushi and fish, you have a, a piece of ginger. What does the ginger do? Washes the palate. Friends, do you need a piece of ginger in your life today? Something to cleanse the palate, to reset you, to renew your life. Repentance is the best way to prepare ourselves. And it's not just with words, but it's with action. And in a moment here, we'll have a time to pray and just reflect. And I don't want you to just say, Or don't just say, I was wrong, because that's helpful. But maybe what we need to do is in repentance say, what can I change in the year? What is the step of courage that I need to take? Someone once said that courage is the heart of all virtues. All virtues at one point in our life will require courage. Courage is the heart of all virtues. What is that act of courage? I will need to take this new year according to the Lord's guidance. What is that hard thing? What is that thing I'll need to close? What is that, what is that thing I'll need to confront? What is that relationship that I'll need to oppose? What is that change of behavior that I will need to make it work? The evidences of repentance Those who see progress, not perfection, not perfection, but progress. And those nearest to you, I suggest you too, take a moment and see the progress and the growth and the change in your life. But if we don't do the hard work, if we don't take inventory of ourselves, sooner or later someone will take inventory of us. If you don't take your own inventory, Sooner or later, somebody else will be able to take it. So, I invite you to shut your eyes and to consider and to spend a moment in conversation with God. God, I'm sorry.
So, Lord, at this time, I pray for the courage to do the right thing. I pray, Lord, for the willingness to be made willing. Make us willing to do whatever the next right thing is. Work on our hearts this holiday season. As we do our best to prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ's child, not with just lights and that's who, that's who we should be thinking about, too. But more importantly, to prepare ourselves for your arrival of your kingdom, Lord. Help us prepare ourselves for your presence. Help us, Lord, as we look at these two realities and we live sometimes, we live for this present age, we live for this world, we live for the wrong kingdom, Lord, forgive us. Lord, we value the wrong things, we chase after, we pursue after the wrong things. Lord, in our change of heart and change of habit, we pray, Lord, we want to live for the age to come. We want to live with you. We want to live according to your ideals. We want to live with heaven in mind, not just this earth that you squabble us on board your ship. So, Lord, we join you. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.